I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the weak symptom. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. What are we talking about today, Scott? Funny you should ask. Today is unintentional weight loss. Ah, love unintentional weight loss. (laughs) Can I tell you what I love about unintentional weight loss? Go ahead. I love the really, really nonspecific symptoms, unintentional weight loss, fatigue, where just the like whole world of medicine is in front of you when people come in with that. That's true. What I don't like about it is it means that you're about to get behind on your schedule. Yeah, that, that is probably true. So you got a case to present to me? I do. So our patient is a 60-year-old woman who comes in with a 26-pound weight loss over the last four months. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a bit. Well, happy about this, <laughs> she's still surprised that she's never been so successful at losing weight in the past. In general, she feels well. Um, Her past medical history is kind of interesting. So 10 years ago, she was diagnosed with infiltrating ductal breast cancer. The lesion was small, about a centimeter. Uh, Lymph nodes were negative, and she received RT, lumpectomy, and has been on astrozole since then. And subsequent mammograms have been negative. She also has a history of um, severe gallstone pancreatitis five years ago. Actually, it was quite a severe case. Uh, She had pancreatic pseudocysts, had to have multiple surgical procedures, and eventually was actually diagnosed with pancreatic insufficiency and has been on replacement pancreatic enzymes. And finally, she's got hypertension and impaired glucose tolerance. Do you want to know anything else? Yeah, why don't you give me just sort of meds and, I don't know, quick exam? Sure. So her medications, she's on the inostrozole, she's on hydrochlorothiazide and replacement pancreatic enzymes. On physical exam, her weight was 140, her height's five foot three, and she looked thinner than I remembered seeing her before. Blood pressure is 110 over 78, pulse 92, temperature 36, respiratory rate was normal. HGT exam was unremarkable. The thyroid was not enlarged. The lungs were clear. Her breast exam was without mass. Her axilla were without lymphadenopathy. Her cardiac exam, regular rate and rhythm without murmur, gallop, or rub. Her abdomen was soft, non tender, no masses. And her extremity exam was unremarkable. Good. How is your thyroid exam? My thyroid, you mean, uh, right now my thyroid feels fine. (laughs) (laughs) I think you meant how good is it? Good is your thyroid exam. Well, I'll have to let you watch me do it next time. Okay. Um, Okay. That's sort of a classic case, it sounds like. A woman who sounds like she actually feels pretty well, but coming in with what I'd consider really significant weight loss. I think probably later you'll give me the definition of what significant weight loss is, but 5%? Is that That's right. right. Okay. Okay. And so the things that I usually think about, one is making sure people have actually lost weight. Um, I do have a whole bunch of people in my practice who are always coming in and telling me that they've lost a lot of weight and I get kind of nervous. And then I look back and I was like, you haven't lost any weight. Um, So you got to verify that. You know, I always start with symptoms um, and it sounds like you did a real good, complete history on this woman. And unfortunately, other than the weight loss, she's kind of not giving you anything to go after. That's always the most important thing because I think most people who come in with weight loss, it's really 
quickly apparent, you know, what's going on here. There are a couple of things in her medical history that I think are very important. Um, one, she's had this, you know, pancreatic debacle in the past, right? And it sounds like she's got real, you know, sequelae of that. She's got pancreatic insufficiency that she's on pancreatic enzymes for. She's got impaired glucose tolerance, and she's not a terribly heavy person even before this. So it sounds like she's lost some endocrine pancreatic um, function as well. Uh, so I'd want to make sure she was taking her pancreatic enzymes, that you know her supplier hasn't changed. Pancreatic enzymes are always a hassle to prescribe. Um, and probably just like really ask her, you know, you're having diarrhea, your stools change, things like that for malabsorption. Her breast cancer sounds really low risk, you know, a small tumor treated aggressively. She's still on nastrozole. Um, but breast cancer is one of those things that like, you know, the number of times in my career, it's kind of surprised me by just popping up 10, 15, 20 years later, that's certainly going to be on my mind as well. And then maybe med-wise, besides the anastrozole, the only thing she's on is hydrochlorothiazide and the pancreatic replacement enzymes. We talked about the enzymes. Hydrochlorothiazide doesn't really make me think of anything unless you know she's been, I don't know, hyponatremic and loopy and not eating, but that's probably a stretch. And I'd want to know, I guess, you know, has she had a change in her anti-estrogen therapy, and maybe she's having nausea and poor appetite related to that. Um, so I guess that's sort of what I'd be thinking of at that, this point. Yeah, it's certainly reasonable. And maybe what I'll do is, uh, what if you were going to do first pass right now, what labs would you get on her? Yeah. So, and I think this is fairly standard. Um, you know, if you don't get any clues from uh, the history and physical, and you'll tell me if I'm missing it or, God forbid, over-testing. I usually do a, a comprehensive metabolic panel. So I get electrolytes, I get LFTs. Um, I do a CBC, sort of obviously. I do a UA to make sure people don't have hematuria. I do a TSH. I usually actually send people for a chest X-ray. And I often, and people might scoff, I often will send a SED rate and CRP as well with that. I should actually, I guess I should say, because this is sort of appalling, right? We've been talking about workup without talking about differential diagnosis. You know, unintentional weight loss in the elderly, um, the things that are at the top of my list are malignancy, depression, uh, sort of social issues, poor access to food, you know, dental problems where people can't eat, things like that, hyperthyroidism, peptic ulcer disease, um, and what I always remind myself is that cancer is the most common cause, but it's a minority of the causes. So don't get too crazy about trying to find cancers. Well, that's pretty good. So uh, why don't we go through the systematic five points now? Great. And then uh, we'll come back to her and I'll give you some of those results that you asked for. Teach me, Dr. Stern. Teach me, teach me. So I'm just going to reiterate one of the points you've already made. First, um, Significant weight loss is defined as more than 5% in the last 6 to 12 months. And the first pivotal step is actually documenting they lost weight. And the studies show that anywhere from 25 to 50% of patients who say they've lost weight haven't lost weight. Well, that's a quick workup then. So <laughs> if I can just check their weight and be done, that's fine. Actually, the reason that occurs is kind of hard to describe in a way that's uh, politically correct. But as we get older, we lose muscle mass probably what happens is people are more fleshy. The flesh on their arms hangs down in ways that they're kind yeah. of, uh, they are as they are. And so people believe they're losing weight because they see their flesh hanging off. And it's actually more sarcopenia loss of protein and muscle than it is actually of 
weight. And that's probably due to a couple things, hormonal changes that occur with age, as well as less weight-bearing exercises as they slow down and so on. So number one, check the weight. Okay. And so you said 5% over six to 12 months. So if you're thinking of your like classic 70 kilogram, 150 pound person, you know, you're talking seven to 10 pounds, let's say. Uh, and that, that's, that's a lot of weight, right? right. Um, I mean, I, I feel like my weight has been kind of rock stable for decades and 10 pounds would be shocking in either direction. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's, and it's just, it is really interesting how often I hear this complaint and yeah. it's not true. So that's really helpful. My next point is, Actually, I just grouped it together because they both start with D is diets and diarrhea. So wait, and your first one was document. Oh, right. We might the be D's, looking at a new oh, we could be look, oh man, the D's of weight loss. Um, that's very good. Anyway, diets, you know, we put people on medical diets all the time. We put them on, you know, occasionally low fat diet if they've got coronary disease to keep their um LDLs down and low carbohydrate diets for their diabetes. And most people don't follow those terribly carefully and don't lose much weight. But every now and then somebody sees the light, they got really scared by their diagnosis. The person who just had a myocardial infarction, the person who's just diagnosed with diabetes, and they really listen and they really lose weight. And sometimes they come in and say, they're really worried they've lost weight. Well, that's pretty easy too. So it's good to dispel of the easy things when you can. If there's a really clear association of someone's real attempt to change their diet, often because of a medical diagnosis, then I'm willing to just follow them. I really like that. And I think that's one of those things that come with experience because I'm such a pessimist about people actually changing their behavior and losing weight because, you know, I don't know, you know, 1,999 times out of 2,000, I say it and I'm like, nothing's going to happen. In fact, nothing happens. And so there are occasions where I'm like, boy, you know, your A1C is 6.8. You need to you know, cut out the fruit juice, cut out the pop, cut out the desserts. And then someone comes back 20 pounds lighter, you know, six months. And I'm like, wow, this person either really listened to me or they have pancreatic cancer. And sometimes <laughs> I scare myself. Yeah. I often see where people have had a myocardial infarction. Yes. They're the most scared folks. Great right? point. Um, the other D I said was diarrhea. The differential diagnosis for weight loss is uh, huge, frankly, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult. Um, a subset of those are due to gastrointestinal problems. So if you get someone who has diarrhea and weight loss, then it focuses your differential. There's still a bunch of things on that differential, but at least now you know how to target it, uh, particularly for malabsorption and things of that sort. So um, it's worth noting that right at the get-go. It's funny when you say the the differential diagnosis is endless. It really is. Um, I was, you know, reading symptom diagnosis in preparation for this, and it's very much like delirium. It's kind of, you know, any disease in the right setting can do it. And I have to say, I crossed out two pages in symptom diagnosis because there's a differential in there. And I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, we should just say, could be anything. Yeah, it's one of the things that makes it challenging. Okay, we've done document, diets, and diarrhea. What you got for point three? And I sure hope it's a D. Uh, no, it's actually, I'll have to think about how to find a D in there, but it's to identify high metabolic states. Mm. So one of the reasons why so many diseases can cause weight loss is uh, many diseases are associated with anorexia. Right. And so the anorexia causes weight loss and it's a nonspecific cause of weight loss, but it causes serious weight loss. A smaller number of diseases cause weight loss because of a high metabolic state. Cancer can, hyperthyroidism can, um, malabsorption can, and uncontrolled diabetes can. And so if you find um, that someone is, you know, losing weight, but says I'm eating a ton, 
that would actually change my differential. COPD is another. If people yeah. have very bad COPD, they're always breathing hard. And yeah. uh, it's a lot of work, actually. Yeah. I'm pulmonary cachexia, right? You mentioned diabetes. I, uh, you know, I've certainly seen weight loss and diabetes, um, both type 1 and type 2, actually. Um, I've never really known why that's the case. Do you have an explanation? Well, I think when it's really horribly controlled, yeah. you have tremendous calorie loss from the okay. glucosuria. Got it, got um, it. And they also can have, well, if it's type one, they could have ketonemia, but- Got it. Okay, so we're up to point four. Okay, point four. So next, let's say, and this happens all the time, you've now gone through the history and the physical uh, and you haven't found any obvious clues. Now what you have to do is be really systematic and look at the history and physical for things that are going to point you in the right direction, not make the diagnosis typically. So the history, this is again, where you have to get into your social history as well, because you'd already mentioned, you know, what's their access to food? Are they depressed? Are they an alcoholic? Have alcohol abuse disorders? Turns out 16% of people have lost weight. The second most common cause of weight loss is due to social situations. So you really, you really do need to drill down on that. Um, then you'd go through a physical exam. Of course, you're going to check the thyroid and the vital signs and the heart and the lung and the abdomen. And you, again, you're just looking for any clues. Years ago, I had a woman who was losing weight who, whose axillary exam showed a big mass. Well, hmm. all of a sudden, we're off to the races. Yeah. That's a different problem. Yeah. Um, but that will often still not be helpful. And now you do your basic um, laboratory studies. So as you'd said, a CMP, a CBC, um, HIV is recommended. Said rate, CRP, I agree with you. We'll talk about that. Urinalysis, fecal cup blood test, chest X-ray, and TSH. And I want to just talk about these for a minute. So again, the CMP is often not going to make your diagnosis, but a high alkaline phosphatase would be a clue that something's wrong in either the bone or the liver. Someone who's anemic, why are they anemic? Do they have an iron deficiency anemia that's pointing to a problem in the GI tract? And so on. And a chest X-ray is often not thought about these days very much. But oftentimes, masses can show up on a chest X-ray that you'll have no idea when you're auscultating someone. And so it's a pretty simple test to do and an easy first-line um, test to do. I'd also get a hemoglobin A1C on these folks to evaluate them. I'm going to defend myself for a second because there are some things that you said that I didn't say. And it's because what I should have said is, I'm going to update this person's screening, right? So make sure they've had their breast cancer screening, their colon cancer screening, their uh, cervical cancer screening. You know, if they qualify for lung cancer screening, their lung cancer screening. Um, and that gets a lot of things sort of off the plate. And it's often, to be honest with you, if hopefully it turns out to be nothing bad. It's a good excuse to update people's screening. Well, I think I meant to say that. So that's really a good point. We absolutely have to update their screening exams because the reason they're common screening exams is because these are common problems, right? If they were exceptionally rare, they wouldn't be recommended as routine right. screening exams. You'd also mentioned the SED rate and the CRP. What were you thinking What were you thinking about when you said that? Um, <laughs> so it's funny. I, I was deciding whether I was going to defend me in saying it or defend you and pointing it out as your evaluation. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think a lot of people scoff at the SED rate and the CRP. Um, when I was a resident, we always used to refer to it as a sweater doc test. The sweater docs were like the, you know, the physicians who'd who'd come in in the morning and write, you know, check ESR and then walk out the door and you'd be like, ah, I'm doing all the work here. Um, and sweaters because they were in cardigans because they yeah, were old. Sure, That's like exactly. us now. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's a terrible thing. And then to be honest with you, occasionally when I wear a sweater to work, I'm like, oh my God, I'm a sweater doc. Anyway, 
You know, the ESR and the CRP, I think we all know incredibly nonspecific tests. Where I find they're useful for weight loss is, you know, if you're just at a loss and you're like, I don't know what this person has. I don't think they have anything. You send a CRP and an ESR and either they're normal, which doesn't rule anything out, but at least make it sort of underlines the fact that, yeah, you know, I don't think there's anything going on there. On the other hand, you know, if you get a SED rate of, I don't know, 130, then you're wrong. You know, there's something going on here. You got to look into it. And you still don't really know, right? It could be myeloma. It could be tuberculosis. It could be endocarditis. You got a lot of work up to do, but you know you can't stop. Right. The specificity of a SED rate over 100 is quite high. Quite For badness. For badness. For badness. All those things. Totally. The one other thing I wanted to underline that you said is you mentioned a case of someone with axillary lymphadenopathy, right? I certainly don't. I hope you don't, as part of like a normal, hi, how you doing physical exam, examine people's axilla. So when you're doing an exam for unintentional weight loss, you have to do much more of an exam than you normally do. So I get into people's supraclavicular fossa. I get into their, you know, axilla. I do inguinal node exams, like everything. Right, exactly. Okay, I think we're up to stage five. Okay, so now, unfortunately, sometimes you <laughs> five, still have never, you're never found, you haven't found anything. Yeah, yeah. And so what do you do? This gets a little tricky, frankly. Um, it gets a little tricky because a lot of the elderly in particular lose weight gradually for reasons that are really hard to pin down. Somebody's got a little bit of memory loss, a little bit of Alzheimer's, maybe they're wandering a little bit more. You know, how many of these people need workup is often a subtle judgment call. But for the sake of this discussion, let's assume someone's lost significant weight loss and you really don't think it's due to cognitive changes associated with age. Um, at this point, you have to decide about what sort of other testing you might do. So as you'd said, if they have a history of smoking, you're going to do a chest CT scan. If they don't have that, then you can decide about abdominal imaging and EGD. One interesting thing is that EGD in patients like this has had a reported diagnostic yield of 12 to 44%. That's higher <laughs> than I would have thought. I mean, it's a big spread, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's not a trivial number, right? Um, and then to image the abdomen, the actual recommendations have come down from uh, various authorities that do an ultrasound. I actually find ultrasounds of the abdomen to be not very helpful and always to tell me to do a CT scan to get a better image. So if I'm worried... Frankly, my own personal style is to do a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis to complete the workup. Yeah, I I agree with that. You know, if, if there's something which is which I'm looking at with an ultrasound, um, you know, if the person had hematuria at this, you know, microscopic hematuria, I'd be doing a CT in this case. But if the person had, you know, vaguely abnormal LFTs, I'd probably start with an ultrasound. But if I'm really fishing, I'm going to do a CT too. Right. There's just so many tumors that occur in the abdomen right. that you're just not going to find otherwise. I'm going to comment on two things that you said. One, which I thought was really interesting, and I've, I've got to say I've never really thought of. Dr. Stern, you've taught me something. How do you like that? You know, it is. it is certainly true that so much weight loss that's nothing bad in the elderly is multifactorial, right? It's multiple little changes, um, maybe even a little bit of cognitive impairment, you know, isolation, poor access to food, depression, blah, blah, blah. It's very much like falls in the elderly, right? Right. Where for the most part, it's that you've lost a little bit of proprioception, you've lost a little bit of vision, your vestibular system isn't quite as good anymore. Right. You're not as strong, et cetera. And then the other thing, just because as the um, minimalist of the podcast, we could change the the name of the podcast from S2D to The Minimalist Meets the Maximalist. Um, <laughs> you, you, and you said this, you said that 
all the tests that you just talked about, including the cross-sectional imaging, the EGD, blah, 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 is if you get done with your initial workup and you feel like this person requires more workup, there are going to be a whole bunch of people that you're like, you know what? Nothing about this person worries me. The most important thing is instead of seeing this person in three months, I'm going to see them in a month and I'm just going to sort of see how things go. And the people who you really just start kind of testing them willy-nilly are people who you've got another reason to do that in. Right. You know, it's interesting. I see a lot of elderly patients, as you do too. And a lot of times they get to the point where the family doesn't want a lot done. Right. So it's not a bad time to have that discussion before you launch into, you know, a you know, $10,000 workup to find a tumor you might not evaluate. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to go back to the case. We actually just took a break because a leaf blower was working outside and the noise was beginning to drive us crazy. A friend of mine once said that if um, if there was a podcast and someone gave like the meaning of life or the cure of cancer, but the sa- sound quality was bad, he wouldn't listen to it. Okay, well, I'm glad the leaf blower is <laughs> done. <laughs> okay, so we were... Um, um, you'd left me with the case where you talked about what the evaluation you were doing is. So what came back after this first day? What did you find? So you asked me about diarrhea. And so right. the answer to that was no. Um, you know, she said that her bowel movements have been the same. You do have to be careful with malabsorption because not everybody who has malabsorption has diarrhea. Yeah. And sometimes they just complain of large floating stools. Right, 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 right. She had none of that. So nothing was different in that regard. Uh, there'd never been any hint of recurrence or metastatic breast cancer. So as best we know, that wasn't the case. And her chest X-ray was unremarkable and her uh, comprehensive metabolic panel and CBC were normal. And are you ready for the kicker? I am. Her hemoglobin A1C was 14.7. Really? Yes. Interesting. So I guess that what's happened is that because she has pancreatic insufficiency, that her basically her insulin production had slowly waned and she basically has new type 1 diabetes. Right. We'd get into nomenclature a bit, yeah. but you're right. She has insulin deficiency and profound you know, hyperglycemia, and she would be at risk for DKA. Yeah. Although this is, and actually, they're really dangerous because they don't make glucagon yeah. either. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, so it was really shocking. And then when I said, then I asked the questions I should have asked before, right, which right. is, are you drinking and urine yeah, anymore? And yeah. she goes, yeah, all the time. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well- that might have been a clue. And if I'd asked that first, maybe I'd have saved yeah. some money. But yeah. Was she ketotic at all? On these no, first- not at that point. But I don't doubt if we'd have kept pushing the envelope, sure. she'd have been at risk. Sure. It's interesting. I would expect that a patient like this would probably do great on just a little bit of insulin because she's probably not really insulin resistant. And so maybe the you know 0.4 units per kilogram just fixes everything. Right. Actually, she's done very well. And she's actually a really good candidate then for um, transplant therapy right? because she's not insulin resistant. She, is, she doesn't have the comorbidities of diabetes and the pancreatic islet cells in theory can be infu- infused peripherally. So we are going to look into that actually. Interesting. That way I can spend more money and be the maximalist I'm accused of. Good, good. I like it. I appreciate it. Um, I, I quoted the 0.4 units per kilogram, uh, which is how much insulin mammals need. I only know that because I think this is so interesting. My um, cousin had a little Scotty dog once who had type 1 diabetes. And it turns out that that's preserved. So if you're treating type 1 diabetes in any non-insulin resistant mammal, whether it be a Scotty dog, a whale, or a human, it's the same across the board. Well, now we know our podcast has true values because you can treat humans and dogs. I think there are more people who listen to dog podcasts than medicine podcasts, so I'm just trying to broaden our appeal. I have a new pet peeve, I've decided. (laughs) 
I don't want to hear it. I think it has to do with your dog discussions. Okay, so now we're going to move on to fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. And I'm going to start because I have one and I don't think you do. And I want to claim this turf. Um, this is so vaguely related to weight loss. Uh, lid lag, okay, is, is incredibly specific for hyperthyroidism. Um, the positive likelihood ratio of lid lag for hyperthyroidism is over 17. That's an impressive number. Um, it is worth realizing that we have to distinguish lid lag, which occurs in many forms of hyperthyroidism from exophthalmos, which right. is specific to Graves. So uh, any of the causes of hyperthyroidism can cause lid lag. Great. Good point. Common misconceptions, you got something? Yeah. So the one that really jumps out is cancer. So everybody, when they see patients losing weight, is worried about cancer. And the interesting thing is it is the most common cause, but it's not the cause in the majority of patients. So depending on what series you look at, it's the cause in anywhere from 19 to 30%, 36% of cases of patients who have unintentional weight loss. But it's not the 80 or 90% you might think when you look at a patient. Good. Those are good numbers to have out there. Um, mine is one that I actually, I thought this, that you'd give me a case of this because I, I think I know you like this. Um, so the misconception is that um, if someone's not having an abdominal pain, they do not have an ulcer. Absolutely not true. Uh, peptic ulcers can definitely present with weight loss without pain. And this is an interesting little factoid that, that I read. Um, if you compare people who are having an EGD for weight loss versus those who are having an EGD for dyspepsia, dyspepsia that you know, hasn't gotten better with a PPI, it turns out that those with weight loss are more likely to have an ulcer than those with dyspepsia. Isn't that shocking? It's shocking. I mean, it's an incredibly, you know, subselected group, but still, you know, a lot of people will just lose weight from peptic ulcer disease. And I got to say, I've seen, uh, you know, I don't know, half a dozen cases of that over my career. Hence the utility of the EGD as part of the final workup for unintentional weight loss. Right. In those people, you feel like, I haven't found anything. I'm still worried about this person. Where do I go next? Right, exactly. It's important. And you're not going to, you you're generally not going to see anything on cross-sectional imaging with someone who just has peptic ulcer disease. Right, exactly. Uh, what are we up to? Pet peeves. All right, How pet peeves. Uh, yeah, so other than launching into Scotty the dog, and my first name being Scott, I take a little bit of offense at that. Um, I, my pet peeve is just launching into a big workup before you've documented patients have lost weight. Even I, as a maximalist, think that's a bad idea. Yes. Working up weight loss in someone who hasn't lost weight is bad. It's like evaluating iron deficiency anemia in someone who has anemia, but not iron deficiency. Kind of a waste of time. Um, mine, I guess, you know, we've sort of talked about this and I don't want to needle you too much here. Um, it's the like torso CT, right? It's that reflexive person's losing weight. They need an extensive cancer workup. You know, we as doctors and our patients, of course, are always concerned about um, cancer. But remember, you quoted the numbers, cancer accounts for, what did you say, 17? 19 to 36%. 19 to 36%. I remember 25%, which I guess is a little bit on the low end of the of the mean there, which, which goes along with the way I think. Um, a couple of numbers which are, um, or maybe one number which is important, is that if the initial workup is negative, okay, and the initial workup includes 
um, evaluations which are indicated by that initial workup. So, you know, they're abnormal LFTs, you then work up the abnormal LFTs. If that's all normal, there's less than a 5% chance that cancer is the cause. So really, you're pretty safe once you've finished, you know, good history, good physical, and the, and the evaluations that we've kind of beat to death already. All right, should we go on to pearls? Let's go on to pearls. What do you got? I'll start up. <laughs> you know, my first pearl that I've noted has already been definitely beat to death. It's make sure that the patient is actually losing weight. We clearly both have had issues with this. Um, so go on. You you hit me with a pearl. All right. So um, hyperthyroidism in elderly is really a shocking mm. animal. So we, when we think of hyperthyroidism, we think of the person with little lag, with exophthalmos, with sinus tachycardia, who's sweating, who's eating a lot and still losing weight, and maybe having diarrhea and looks anxious and is, you know, moving all around. And the elderly, that's not the way it looks. It turns out that a lot of these patients are not tachycardic. They're not tremulous. And actually... They can look like they have cancer. They've lost weight. They're anorexic. They're not moving much. They're actually worn out from the hyperthyroidism. And there's a name to that. It's called apathetic hyperthyroidism in the elderly. And there was an old journal article from years and years ago that it actually had a picture of a patient who had this. And when you looked at this patient, she was an elderly woman with cachexia who wasn't moving. And you'd have bet a million dollars she had cancer or depression. And she was hyperthyroid. And I have to admit, I know this is shocking. I've spent a lot of money in the past working up someone who turned out to be hyperthyroid and I about hit myself in the head. So there. So you made a mistake? I did. I know it's hard to believe. Wait, did you make a mistake? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I have one. This is, I I hate to do this. This is non-evidence-based, but I've recently made the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, um, basically part of my evaluation for unintentional weight loss in people who I'm in the office and I kind of don't have any leads. And that's because much as you spoke about, you know, I'm at the place in my career, having been at University of Chicago for now, you know, almost 25 years, where a lot of the patients who, when I acquired them as patients were, you know, in their 60s and now they're in their 80s and 90s. And so a lot of times when those people come in with weight loss, they're of course, you know, up to date on their cancer screening. They've had amazing primary care for the last 25 years. That often what's happening is that there's some cognitive impairment, which is leading in all sorts of ways to weight loss. And so if I don't really have a clue to where I go, sometimes actually the cognitive assessment is helpful because I realize that that's potentially a cause if I don't find anything else on my lab workup and my imaging workup. Do you have any trouble? I have to admit, this is probably my personal biases and whatnot, but I sometimes feel uncomfortable telling patients I'm going to do those, the cognitive mochas and things. I feel almost guilty because I'm either delineating some, I might delineate something that they have they don't want to admit or make them cognitively aware that they have more of a problem than they thought. Yeah. And since we don't have treatments for it, I, know. I have to admit, I have more hesitation about this than I should. Yeah, I think you have more hesitation than you should. I do always, always, always um, get who's ever with them out of the room because I think it's sort of cruel to like have a spouse having to watch his or her spouse, you know, answer all sorts of things wrong. I do pitch it as, look, I'm going to ask you these silly questions. It helps me to know, you know, what I'm thinking. And I do think I've probably been scoffed at a occasionally, you know, if a patient gets admitted, 
Because there are certainly patients who I know have cognitive impairment that I won't do one of those tests because I'm like, it's not going to help me. You know, I know that this person is having problems. And as you say, if it's not going to help dictate therapy, it's not going to help me convince them that they have a problem. You know, what's the point? So you use it in a discriminating fashion. I do. When you think it's really going to help you know what's going on rather than when you kind of know and you're trying to, you know. Right. Because there are those people who have, you know, you're suspicious they have cognitive impairment. Maybe they have some, you know, seem to have lost some verbal skills, but they also seem quite functional where you do a mocha and all of a sudden it's, you know, it's 15 and you're like, wow, who would have thought that? Because people can cover it up so well. Um Okay, so I have one. So okay. this is really an interesting one. It's comparing people who overestimate their weight loss with people who underestimate their weight loss. So it turns out that, you know, people are overestimating their weight loss or often people are pretty nervous. And as a result, they actually have cancer pretty uncommonly. They don't usually. Only 6% <laughs> of those people had cancer and 73% had no cause found versus, and people are underestimating their weight loss, 52% of them had cancer. Isn't that shocking? I mean, those are huge differences. Those are huge differences. It's one of those things, you know, it's certainly not diagnostic, but it sure is interesting. Um, the two things that remind me of it, one piece of data, which has been kind of debunked, which, but we talked about for a while, was the idea that if someone actually complained of memory loss, they were more likely to be depressed than demented. Right. Um, that's actually not seems true. to not be the case. One thing that is the case, which is completely useless and maybe just cocktail party conversation, is that patients who come in with a GI bleed always overestimate the amount of blood they've lost. So if you say, like, how much blood do you have? And they say, a gallon. It's not a gallon. Well, now we have cocktail conversations and we know how to treat our dogs with uh, diabetes. So I think this has been a really useful podcast. Imagine the cocktail party you'd be at that you'd be talking about people overestimating their melanin. I I hope not. Okay. We hope you found this episode of the Symptoms Diagnosis Podcast, S2D, useful and a bit enjoyable. I think this was particularly enjoyable myself. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom Diagnosis and Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print through all the usual places, on our mobile device, and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for the STD podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.